Well, what's going on, y'all? Uh, we all had some fall off already. Already, the training, training just took place. Let me try it again. What's going on, y'all? There we go. Well, I am truly excited to be here. Uh, it's been a long time coming. I've been a Brooklynite, my family and I, for 10 whole days. 10 whole days, yes. And uh, as James alluded to in the prayer, we actually moved here from Indiana. Uh, and it's interesting. There, I've noticed a few differences, just a couple, uh, between where we lived in Indiana and here. Uh, my, one of the things that I immediately thought about was my commute to the office has looked a lot different. Um, I was about 12 miles away you know, from the suburbs. It was a place called Westfield, Indiana. And it actually only took like 20, 25 minutes to get there, driving 12 miles away. And uh, as I was thinking and reflecting about how things were going to be different um, while I was there, I, one of the last days that I uh, went to the office, I thought, you know, the folks in, in Brooklyn might appreciate, you know, just kind of getting a sense of the scenery that I came out of in the context. Um, so I decided I pulled off on the side of the road and I took a picture you know, so that you can see the difference. You can show that now. So, um, <laughs> literally, this is just a few blocks away, well, blocks, uh, a few cornstalk fields away from the office. It's in between uh, my home and, and where we worked. And uh, yeah, so I'm straight out of cornfields, you know what I mean, uh, right now. But, uh, <laughs> That wasn't originally where I'm from, but I've learned two things already. And if, uh, if y'all know, if I'm on the right track here as a Brooklynite, y'all can say amen. So I learned two things that you, you know, that, that are different about New York. One is you can get almost anything at a bodega. Is that, is that, amen, true, true. And the second thing I learned so far is don't buy turtles or questionable things at the Utica MTA stop. <laughs> You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that they sell randomly in Utica Station, apparently, and that's not something you want to do. Amen on that, too? You know, it's not a pet store? Okay, cool. So I learned a few things. Um, as, uh, as James mentioned, I work with musicians, um, but I, I, I want to clarify this. on you know, We have to set some preliminary dynamics, because naturally people assume that that means I'm a musician or a singer, and I'm not. You know, I was kind of like Diddy, but without the talent. Well, I guess it's kind of like Diddy. Um, oh, hey, hey, you know. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I am, I was passionate, my wife and I, we still are, about building up the next generation of urban artists uh, to take the gospel to the world. And we did that through outreach as well as worship. Um, but even though Indiana is where my family, you know, where we came from, that's not, that wasn't the first stop in my journey. Was actually born and raised in Philly. Yeah, that's what's up. Philly in the house. And, uh, and it was while I was at Penn that I got a phone call from this dude who wanted to actually book a, a, a band called Cross Movement and thought I was in the group. So he called me up and was like, yo, we want, we're having this thing. And I'm like, I know them and we're friends, but I'm not in the group. So then there was that awkward moment in the convo where you can't just go, all right, then hang up. So he had to like feign interest for like a little bit longer. But uh, in any case, that ended up being a start of a friendship. And about a year later, 
we ended up moving to Howard University, James and I did, to start a movement. And I actually have uh, a picture from this, yeah. This is Howard 2000, the year 2000 in the fall. This was about 15 years ago this month that we were uh, down there together, young bucks uh, looking to, to make a splash and, and do big things. So um, now here's the thing, about a year later, uh, we got, uh, I got married to Tamika and you know, we uh, are, you know, became a family. And the thing that was interesting is those two scenarios weren't unrelated, right? Because um, as Tamika will often tell you, when she met James, she knew the engagement was gonna be coming around the corner. Because I, like, my, I grew up like around foodies, like my family were like foodies, right? And before it was like a thing or something that people call, but like on any, any given night, we'd have to like chafing dishes out and like roasted lamb. And you know, my, my, my grandma was a caterer. That's just how we kind of got down. So then when she came down to visit and she saw like James's mold, like well, this dude would literally, I'd never seen this before, take some oatmeal, put it under a faucet and just start eating. <laughs> and I, like raw, like no heating it up, but nothing. And Tamika saw this and she was like, oh yeah, it's just a matter of time. He's not gonna be able to hang out in this scenario. And she was right, she was right. But, um, but yeah, so here's a cool thing that, uh, like God has really brought a lot of things together in this season and, 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 and bringing us here. Uh, my daughter, Ariana, she just graduated from high school in June. Can we give it up for her? Yep. And um, she was the first one that actually expressed interest a couple years ago. You know, her top choice college-wise was NYU and she wanted to be a screenwriter and wants to be a screenwriter. And so, uh, you know, that was like the first time, it, you, know, you know, New York really was like on the radar and someone saying, yeah, I definitely want to be here. And uh, so we'll see what happens with that. You know, she's doing a gap year, so she can kind of explore the city and stuff. And then my wife, she, after serving together for about 10 years, she ended up uh, be going to become an esthetician, going to school for that and getting a license. And all of a sudden, just the interest in New York and being able to kind of press her envelope and get stretched in that realm kind of began to grow. And then lastly, just as I was praying and, and and, and just really thinking about next steps, God really just uh, moved us here. And so really was a, as a family, we all have something here for us that we're excited about and, uh, and that he, God worked out independently of each other. But one of the, the specific passages that the Lord brought to my attention um, as I was praying about New York City was uh, a, a familiar one to some, Jeremiah 29, seven. And in it, it says, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And, and, and one of the things that word welfare there in some translations is translated, seek the peace of the city. And it's the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom has a much more deep significance and connotation than simply peace as the word welfare would suggest. It, it, it suggests a sense of wholeness and completeness not just the absence of war, but the presence of, of justice, the presence of, 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 of joy, the presence of just completeness in one. It's, it's the concept that we see really in, in Genesis uh, in chapter one, where after God makes, you know, you know, says, let there be light and, and creates the world. And he said at the end of each thing, he says, and he, and he said that, saw that it was 
good. But then when he finishes, after making man, he says he saw that it was very good. And that very good has this sense of it was complete. It was finished. The work was, was done. And so that was the, the concept from the beginning. But something happened in God's perfect, complete creation, right? Adam sinned. He, 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 he rebelled. He, he, he ate of the tree he wasn't supposed to eat. And at that point, brokenness entered into this complete and whole world. At that point, fallenness. And it, and it affected multiple things. It affected not only Adam and Eve's relationship with God, but we see it affected their relationship with each other and their children's relationship with each other and their children's relationship. Even with creation itself and nature. And all of a sudden, all this brokenness began to happen. And as a result of that, that's fast forward where we are now in the story where you saw this. And, and, and today we still have this sense in which the world is not quite right. Babies, when they're born, what the first thing they do? Cry. Something ain't right. They're like, wait a minute. <laughs> what happened? And, and as I think about specifically New York City and, and, and some of the conversations that are happening and some of the issues, it, it, you know, I think about this sign uh, that we see sometimes, and, and it, I think it reflects a deep and significant truth. No justice, no peace. And, and that sense of without justice, without this sense of wholeness and completeness, there really can't be peace. It's, it's, I don't think people really fully recognize the full significance of that sign. But not only do you see that in Times Square, but that hit quite home, just a few blocks away. Just, man, it wasn't even quite a year ago. When we saw this unrest and, and these frustrations and things boiling over all across the country because of the sense of brokenness that people are experiencing all over. Now, raise your hand if you know someone or you yourself that considers injustice, whether it be police brutality, gentrification, domestic violence, or even immigration policy, a major concern for this city. Raise your hand if you either feel that way or you know someone who feels that way very strongly. Just about everybody in here. And so, this, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is part of that conversation, and that conversation has been happening all over. And even as movies like Selma, you know, have kind of been released and come out in this, in this critical time, and that's the, the cast of Selma, they were here in New York promoting the movie and, and, and being a part of this, this movement, um, that there, there's a strong sense in our world that something is not right, something is broken. But the challenge that I face as a believer, and I think many of us face, is trying to wrap our head around, well, what does God have to say about this and enter into the conversation? Yeah. I mean, it's like, on the one end, yeah, I, you know, I, I feel that, but I don't necessarily hear a whole lot talked about this. Or, you know, is, I mean, does God care? Does, is, is he involved? Does, is, does he, you know, what does he feel about protesting? Should I protest? Should I not protest? Should I sit at home? What's going, you know, it's funny because the, the 20th anniversary of the Million Man March just happened yesterday. And I remember thinking 20 years ago when I just became a believer, like, should I go? Should I not go? Farrakhan's there. I don't know. I mean, it was just like, that was just, you know, and 20 years later, I, you know, I, I just, you know, I'm like, man, that whole lot has changed. 
And my thinking on these things have been informed by some incredible, brilliant theologians and perspectives that I've had, you know, people that I've had the um, privilege of knowing, uh, who love God, who, who follow his word, and who also have seen a context for all these things playing themselves out. People like Dr. John Perkins and uh, Carl Ellis and, and folks like that. And so, so today, I just want to unpack a little bit with the time that we have. We don't have time to get into all of it because, you know, just, you know, time escapes us. But there is this question, this fundamental question of, you know, BLM, right? Like, does Black Lives Matter movement matter to God? And, and even beyond that, I think the answer to that question, to any question, whether it be a black life or a Latino life or a white life or an Asian life, is what does God see and, 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 and what does he, how does he respond? And the bottom line is yes, black lives matter because life matters. Because life matters. Now that's not to discredit and that's not to diminish or all of that, the, the, the term, but it is to say that there's this broader context that God has spoken very clearly about and specifically as it relates to this issue of justice. And so the text that we're going to look at as I prayed about this, it was just emblazoned on my heart very clearly, was John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. And it records a situation in the life and ministry of Jesus that I believe is very instructive for us today. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we are no longer slaves either physically or spiritually. Thank you that you care for us and have revealed your truth to us. Help us to hear clearly from your word today. We, we have worshiped you in song. Now let us worship you in the preaching and hearing of your word. Speak through me, Father, and declare your truths, not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let me set a little bit of context here, uh, you know, as you go to John chapter 8. Now, John, the Gospel of John, he actually tells us, one of the things that's interesting about John, and pretty much every letter, whether it's his Gospel or the first John, second John, third John, he always kind of has this tendency of telling you why he speaks. He writes. He's like a reluctant writer that's like, okay, this is why I'm doing this. And so he gives us his mission statement in John 20, verse 31. It says, these are written... These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He makes it very clear. This is why I'm writing this. In chapter one, we see a great start. You know, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and, and by the end of John chapter one, you see John the Baptist identifying him saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Some of his followers, Peter and John, like, hey, let's, let's, let's go, Andrew, you know, let's go and follow him. And so he gets his first followers. In John chapter 2, we see him do his first miracle, turning water into wine at a wedding that it run out of food and drink. Now, how, y'all, how many of us have been to a wedding? Now, especially culturally in, in my community where I grew up, one of the worst cardinal sins was to have an event and run out of food. Like, that's like, 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 you couldn't, that's just like the worst thing in the world. And so Jesus kind of sets in and, and, and creates this miracle. And even though he kind of did it on the slide, people, his, his name and, and popularity starts to rise. And, and so it's all good. Chapter three, we see followers, so many followers emerge 
that John's followers start to get a little jealous and go up to him and say, hey, more people are following him than following us. And John is like, look, I must decrease that he must increase. It's all good, guys. Chapter four, he even breaks into new ground, goes to Samaria, crossing cultural barriers, crossing, crossing ethnic barriers, crossing gender barriers, and speaks to this woman at this well. And not only is she so transformed, she goes back to the village, tells everybody else, they come and have this great time with Jesus. They don't want them to leave. And, and so it just seems like it just keeps building and building. Ch- chapter five, he, there's a man that was, was, was blind and, and, and he cries out to Jesus and Jesus heals him. And, and, and everybody is amazed at this miracle that a, that a man born blind was actually healed. And they're like, man, this is it. And this is when you start to see things start to change. Because not everybody is happy about what Jesus making all this commotion and his noise and raising all this following. And some, some Pharisees start to get a little irritated about this, especially he did it on the Sabbath day and all of this. So by chapter six, he feeds 5,000 people. And even though he does that, there's still this struggle that people are having with him. And it's by chapter seven, the Pharisees are actually practically trying to kill him. He goes to the uh, Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, and they send officers to go arrest him. But the officers, while they're waiting to arrest him, waiting for the right moment, they hear what he's saying and are so blown away that they can't arrest him. They go back to the priest and they're like, yo, that dude was dropping knowledge. We can't. And they were like, what? So now they go, okay. The people are after him and following him. They love him. Our own officers won't arrest this dude. We need another strategy. And that's where we find ourselves in John chapter 8. I'll read this to 11. It says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote his finger on wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, there there are three observations that I want to make from this story and to help us see how Jesus's response in this scenario shows us a blueprint and a perspective on how to respond to the issues of justice that surround us and that plague us in our society today, in our city right now. But before I get to those points, I just want to help us to see what's happening here, right? So we know that it's September or October when when this is taking place because the Jewish month, Tishrei, 
coincides with September and October, and that was when they were celebrating the Feast of Booths in John chapter 37. And it says right after that feast ended is when this teaching happens. Now, that celebration was a very joy. It was one of the three celebrations, the three feasts, where there was a pilgrimage that was expected, meaning even if you weren't from Jerusalem, you had to come from wherever you were to be a part of this celebration. And it was the celebration that acknowledged the time when God had delivered the people of Israel from Egypt and took them into the wilderness, and then they, they survived for 40 years, though they didn't have a permanent dwelling place and just kind of were wandering around the wilderness. So to celebrate that and commemorate that moment in, that, in their history, in their time, they would actually build like tents, that's why, you know, or tabernacles, that's a tent, or a booth, and live in them for that week of the celebration and eat and, and celebrate and worship together. And that was how they did that once a year. And so wherever you came from, you had to be a part of it. And it was this great remembrance of, man, the Lord did this for us as a people. And the interesting thing is there are Jews today that still celebrate this, right? Last week was this time period, right? The Feast of the Tabernacles. And if you went to Crown Heights, like I did to go visit, you know, with Ariana, you saw people in booths in front of their homes that stood out there, if it was, you know, like cold outside, whatever, and they slept overnight in these booths to represent this time. So the point, though, is in the moment of this text, there's massive amounts of people because people have come from all over to be a part of this. And this is like the next day, right? So this is like they're checking out the hotel. They're about to be out. Oh, we get to hear Jesus one more time before we roll. So cool. Let's do that. And then we're about to bounce. I'm sure they said that, too. We're about to bounce. <laughs> So while they're doing this, it says that while he's teaching, the Pharisees and the scribes bring this woman, and it says who has been caught in the act of adultery. Now picture the scene. I'm teaching right now, and a bunch of dudes just yank a woman in front of him and toss him in front of him and say, yo, the law say we should kill her. What do you say we should do? Like right in the middle of his message, I would be kind of distracted and a little angry about that myself but but they that's that's what the scenario presents and they seem to ask a seemingly on the surface pretty obvious question the law of Moses says that we should kill her we should stone her to death what do you say now when you think about it Jesus is a teacher right he, they call him teacher he, he knows the law he, he he likes the Bible the Old Testament that's his thing and so it should be a pretty simple one-to-one -one correlation. Well, Moses said, do this. I'm down with Moses. Then that's what you should do. But verse 6 gives us an indication that not all is right. And that is where it says on the screen, this they said to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. See, like I said in chapter 7, they realized that the people, he was so popular that they couldn't just kind of yoke them up, grab them, and, and kill them that way. Their own officers didn't come after them, so they had to come up with another approach. And they came up with this. I know what, we'll get them in a catch-22. This this, and this is the problem. If Jesus says, no, don't stone her, that's cold, man. We can't just kill this woman like that. Come on then they can accuse him of not being a follower of the law. 
and they can discredit him as a teacher. Now, to us, it might seem kind of extreme that someone caught in adultery would be like even killed, like at all. Like if that was the case now, like Shonda Rhimes' characters would all be dead, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Grey's Anatomy, gone. <laughs> Same scandal, gone. And how to get away, like all the characters, gone. <laughs> we live in a different time. But, but that was what they presented. But well, why was that an issue for Jesus? Well, there was another problem. Because, all right, so if he, so if he says kill the woman, then it's like, well, if he says don't kill the woman, then they say that he, he doesn't follow the law. But if he says kill the woman, then there's another problem. You see, they were now a colony of Rome. And so they weren't able on their own to execute capital punishment. Because it would be like, like Puerto Rico just can't decide to like declare war on, you know, like another country because they are a province of the United States. They're not a sovereign nation. And so they can't just decide on their own to do so. So in the same way, he's saying, look, we, so we will, we, they will make a beeline to Rome, to the Roman officials, to Pilate and them, if, if Jesus says, go ahead, stone them. So now it's like, ah, we got you. Either way, which one are you going to pick? Now notice something. None of this has to do with the woman. This all has to do with catching Jesus. And what does that have to do with justice? Well, dictionary.com says that justice is the quality. Hey, that's a reputable source. She's, she's clowning my Dang. Man, I heard y'all in New York was tough, but dang. Great laughing during the midnight. Nah, I'm playing. So it says the quality of being just, righteousness, equitableness, and moral rightness. Now, the priority of justice is to treat people fairly and ultimately create a situation in which people experience the type of fairness and dignity that God would give them and that you will give yourself. Right. So to be just and to be fair. Now, their priority in this context was not at all fairness, nor was it dignity. It was to discredit Jesus. And to do it in such a public and disgraceful way where they stripped this woman of a sense of worth. This was not justice. And it also wasn't fair. How do I know that it wasn't fair? <laughs> well, Leviticus 20.10 reads this. This is the passage, because the thing is, they were right, this was in the law, this is it. Leviticus 20.10 says, if a man commits adultery with his wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be surely put to death. How was how this not just? How was this not fair? They themselves had said that they caught her in the act of adultery. Now, the last time I checked... <laughs> You can't commit adultery by yourself. <laughs> they, amen? You know what I'm saying? That, that, you know. And so there was somebody else involved. So, but why did they pick this woman to expose? Women were, were more vulnerable. She couldn't fight back like the guy. She was a second-class citizen in her community. She couldn't even testify at her own trial. So she was simply a means to an end. And Jesus responded to this situation. 
He bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin be among you to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone. Now, I mean, just picture the scene. They're, they're yelling at him. They're talking at him. What should we do? What should we do? What should we do? And this dude just like. <laughs> I mean, he's just like not paying them any attention at all. Right. He's just, you know. Hmm. Let he that's without sin cast the first stone. <laughs> Just like totally ignore that. That's funny to me. I don't know. Um, but in our theologians debate about what he wrote, what it, but it, we don't know what he wrote, but we do know what he said. Now, he said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, this is reminiscent of the issue that he had had with the Pharisees all throughout his ministry. And it's, and it's reflective of the hypocrisy that he hated. In Matthew 26, I mean 23, we see that Jesus was rolling down the street with his woes. Six woes to be particular. I, and I, oh yeah, I, I quote, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Listen, <laughs> come back, come back. Um, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done while not neglecting the others. He says, you, you blind guide straining at a gnat while swallowing a camel. This wasn't just hyperbole. They literally would take a, a filter and st like strain like when they would drink tea to make sure no bugs, no gnats got in it because bugs were considered unclean. And so he says, you do that, but then you neglect being just to people. How can you do this? You And he hated this type of thing. And, and that's really the first point. In Isaiah, it says this, for the Lord, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering offering. And I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. The main storyline of the Old Testament that Israel keeps going back to is when they delivered, when God was, delivered them from bondage. And the reason why is it says that he saw their oppression, which the Egyptians oppressed them with. And he responded and he heard their cries. The point is God loves justice. And he hates injustice. One of the most mind-blowing discoveries I made as I was just studying in the Old Testament, and I saw that the Hebrew word for justice is tzedek. Isn't that amazing? You're like, well, no, not particularly. <laughs> Here's why that was amazing to me. It's the same word translated as righteousness. So when we think of God's character, innately in his character, he is righteous. It says in the same way that he is just, He's fair, and, he, and, he, and, he, and his justice is the foundation of his throne. And this is the same cry that when there's injustice that he responds to and that we can hear today in our country. A couple stats to show you. Blacks are one million of 2.3 million incarcerated in the United States of America. That's almost half the prison population while being only 13% of the population. 
Statistics say, say that if the current trend continues, one in three black males born today can expect to spend some time in prison in their lives. To show this graphically, you can see that in contrast, that top one is one in every 106 white males age 18 or older is incarcerated. And the bottom is one in every 15 males age or 18 or older are incarcerated, black males. Now, some of you might say, well, that's, that sounds disappointing, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's unjust, right? Maybe more black people do bad things that make them worthy of being incarcerated. That's a fair point, a fair question. I was a sociology minor. I know statistics and thing, probability and causes. But here's the other thing where you gotta start to see this thing look different. You could go to the next slide. About 14 million whites and 2.6 million blacks report using drugs. This is self-reporting. Like they did a survey and they're like, yeah, I, I smoke weed, I do dr illegal drugs, <laughs> right? While that is the case, Blacks equal 12% of the drug users, but 59% of those in state prisons for drug offenses. So you see, this is the context of the outcry when situations like Michael Brown or Eric Garner or Sandra Bland's untimely deaths come up. It's not just about the specifics of those cases and if the officer was guilty or innocent or right or wrong in those particular, but the, 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 the outcry comes out because of the broader issue of injustice. And it's something that God looks upon and hates. He hates injustice. He says it in his word. But in this passage, we don't just see injustice in that sense, we also see corruption as well because they probably entrapped this woman. Remember the context now, they, they had just tried to get Jesus one way, couldn't get it. They just tried to get the officers, couldn't do it. And so now, right on the day that everybody's about to leave the feast, to go back home, they happen to find a woman caught in adultery and happen to bring her to him while he's teaching in front of an audience and witness. There's a good chance that the other person was in their crowd. Let him who was without sin, cast the first stone. See, in order to comply with the law, that meant that there was more than one person that would have been throwing rocks at. That if you witnessed it, you had to be the one that was throwing rocks, which meant that they probably would have had to stone one of their campaigns. Now, Jesus is not saying that you have to be perfect in order to execute justice. In other words, and, and, because if he did, then nobody would be able to have any kind of court system. But what he's speaking to is the fact that there was this greater injustice happening. That's one point. So the first point out of the three is that God loves justice and hates injustice. And here's a, a sidebar to that. You can't be righteous and not just. Righteous without justice is hypocrisy. This is the type of hypocrisy that had slave dungeons on like people in chains lying in their own filth and above a chapel worshiping God for the people that were about to take them over in their chains to the new world. You cannot be righteous and be unjust. Jesus stood up to her, but that's not the only thing. So that's not the only thing that happens in the story. And I'll move quickly on. Jesus stood up and said to her, women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? 
She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Now, notice this is the first time in the passage that anyone has addressed this woman. They were talking about her. They were calling her out of her name. They didn't they adulteress. But no one actually spoke to her. Jesus, we see, invites dialogue. And he, and he, and he, does, and he just asks a question. He says, where are they at? Now, if we know about Jesus. We know he knows the answer to that. Obviously, they had walked away. But he's given her opportunity to respond. And look at her response. She says, no one, Lord. <laughs> now, the funny thing is, the religious, they called him teacher. She, she kicks it up a notch. She says, I know your real identity. I know you're not just a teacher. You're Lord. She recognizes who he is. And here's the thing. Now, here's the point. Second point is that. But there's still a problem, though, right? Because Jesus still has this issue where she still sinned. She's still caught in adultery, even though the context and the entrapment and all of that. She doesn't deny it. How is he able to then say, neither do I condemn you? And, and essentially set us all the law of Moses. This is how. Because ultimately, he decided to exchange her condemnation for his own. You see, a few chapters later, we get to see almost the same situation take place. A group, a mob, arrest Jesus on some trumped up charges. They, they arrest him. He becomes a victim of police brutality as they punch him, spit him, rip his beard and, and kick him. Not only that, he then gets arrested and, and tried in a, in a kangaroo court, held seen as guilty, and then executed. Now, here's the thing. While he was being executed, his hands were up. But instead of saying, don't shoot, he said, Father, forgive them, for I know not what they're doing. For they know not what they're doing. And as he stood there, and you know how Jesus died? What he actually died of? Asphyxiation. I couldn't breathe. Jesus is able to release her, and his response to her is compassion because he took on himself the very form of injustice that he rescued her from and that he rescues us from. God responds to us as lawbreakers and with compassion and not condemnation. And one of the biggest issues and, and the things that disturb me as I, as I watch and I engage in the discussion and the dialogue around these issues is that people are quick to say, well, he stole those cigarellos, though. The little boy had a toy gun. And there's this not this sense of where's the compassion to say, wait a minute, a 17 year old kid just got shot and killed. Isn't that a tragedy worth grieving? Or is that a judgment worth coming down to? Well, Jesus's response to us was to forgive and to and to pay the ultimate price. See, He didn't set aside the law of Moses. He fulfilled it in himself. Well, the last part, the last part is that this is only possible in, her, in, in, in order to access that sense of compassion, in order to access that sense of freedom, is the last part. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. Now, now see, there's one of the tragedies about 
injustice is that we are so integrated with the idea and the concept of the image of God that we cannot actually abuse and oppress people without making them less than human first. This is why whenever you see this, there's some other name that's given for a group of people than the actual name that they have because we have to somehow disassociate themselves from that name in order to be able to do the horrible things that we do to them. And so now here's the problem when that happens, because not only does it affect the oppressing person, but it also affects the one being oppressed as well. And after a while of that kind of treatment, some people begin to believe the very lies and, and, and things and, and unhuman things that people are saying about them and they embrace it within themselves. And that's a sobering truth. There's a, a video that shows us it's only a minute long. I'm gonna show you this real quick and then we're gonna wrap up. In Bound versus Board of Education, the famous That's hard to watch. And yet it reflects some of the baggage. This was 60 years ago that this experiment was first done. This was part of the, the evidence that was used to make desegregation illegal, to say that segregation has this just innately corrupting influence on kids. And so we have to integrate schools because these segregated schools are, are, are reinforcing this sense of inferiority. But here we are decades later and we still see the same preferences, the same internalized sense of self-hate. And this is one of the reasons why we have to understand that in Jesus and in the gospel in God himself incarnate looking at this woman and say, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more is the answer and is the solution for her situation, but not only just for her individually, but for us corporately as well. And so as I look at our culture and I look at our music and I look at these things and I, and I see how these patterns are being reinforced and even supported by our own people, it, 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 it troubles me 
Because today we still see that people prefer the Barbie image over the black doll image. And we still see that the type of um, sexualization that this woman you know, was experienced and exposed by as an adulteress still becomes the identity. That's what they branded her as. That's what they labeled her as. And when we look at our music, we still see it today. And so the question becomes, well, how do we turn that corner? Well, Jesus said, go and sin no more. You can show that picture. She's, we're still preferring the Barbie. At some point, we're still being told by Fetty Wap, you're nothing but a trap queen. We're still being told, I only call you on the weekend when it's half past five. The only time I will call you mine. And see, the problem, and then these same people would then want to promote justice and be like, Black Lives Matter. But here's the reality. Remember I said righteousness without justice is hypocrisy? Justice without righteousness is hypocrisy as well. It's two sides of the same coin. That in order to holistically move this thing forward, we have to embrace both the, the righteous side of morality and the justice side of morality and see both of them as one and the same. We don't get to pick and choose. This matters because life matters. God challenges us both individually and corporately to change. I wanted to show you something real quick. We're just going to speed through this. You got that slide? Next one coming up. Keep going. I ain't got time for that. All right. I wanted to, but I can't. But um, so in this is a matrix, right? And it shows us how as, as evangelicals in particular, we kind of usually hang out in one side of this sphere. So there's individual and corporate and then unrighteousness and injustice. So cheating on taxes is like individual unrighteousness. That's like sin, right? That's bad. We shouldn't do that. And then we shouldn't. But then go. But it, but there's only one part of it. Individual injustice is a boss or someone that's in a position of power exploiting employees. That also is unrighteous and that also is unjust. But keep going, those are the next one. Then you have corporate unrighteousness, like consumerism, lack of generosity. And then lastly, you have corporate injustice. And God in his word speaks to all of them. And so we can't pick and choose which one. You can go to the next. So this is what the president of World Vision said. He has wrote a great book called The Hole in Our Gospel. And he says the gospel means much more than personal salvation. It's a social revolution. And we see this historically. If you look at the lives of William Wilberforce, uh, who almost single handedly ended slavery in Britain, Martin Luther King Jr., obviously in our own country, Sojourner Truth, who, whose Christian conversion is the impetus behind why she was a crusader against slavery. And all of these people, we see that somehow we have to recapture the wholeness, the shalom of what it is that God wants us to be about. You can go to the last piece. So justice plus righteousness equals change. Next one. So the last point is that God causes us to change. He calls us to change individually and corporately because Life matters. Amen? Amen. Next. Yeah, I think there's something more. Oh, yeah, I had some uh, books that I wanted to recommend as some suggested reading for us to continue to think about these things. 
um, Good News About Injustice. Uh, these are all Christian uh, books, the, the Hole in Our Gospel, The Death of Hip Hop, Marriage and Morals, Free at Last and Let Justice Roll Down. Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you that you care. We thank you that you look at us and you say, no sin, no shame, no death can separate us from your love. Lord, this is heavy stuff, and we live in very complex and heavy times, and we just ask by your grace that you would allow these truths to saturate us. Would you let them be true of us, that we would not be hypocritical, but we would be both stand for righteousness and justice. We give you praise for these things and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.